150. Oh, sure. Uh, 119. Okay. You got to turn it right now. Cause, all right, I'm going to read it because it's right, you're late. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's see. We are live. So it's uh, Psalm 119, verse 65. Let's see here. Tet, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Okay, let's see here. We got, uh, I usually don't look ahead, and but today I decided I had enough time where I figured out what day it was. It's 14 July, and so I put my marker in there. I said, I wonder what this is about today, and it almost, I hate to say this, it almost made me uh, nauseous, but I'm going to read it anyway. Does it make a difference if the President of the United States is a Christian? Well, the answer is yes, but then they immediately devolve into what I think is a very poor analysis of the Presidents of the United States. Jimmy Carter was born in Plains, Georgia in 1924 and grew up on a farm just outside of, a, of town. As a child, Jimmy had only one white friend outside of school, the rest being the children of the local black sharecroppers. He attended the white segregated school in Plains. There, every school day began with a half-hour chapel service for all the students. After the Pledge of Allegiance, a hymn such as He Leadeth Me or Onward Christian Soldiers was sung, and the singing of America or Dixie followed. Bible verses were recited, and sometimes there was an outside speaker, usually one of the white ministers from the town. The three white churches in Plains were Southern Baptist, Methodist, and Lutheran. All three were too small to support a full-time pastor. Often the Baptists and Methodists would hold services on alternate Sundays so their congregations could visit back and forth. Black and white Baptists had worshiped together at the Lebanon Baptist Church until the Civil War when emancipation led to the formation of a white church, Plains Baptist Church. The Black Lebanon Baptist Church was the largest church in town. The high points of the church year in Plains were the weeks of revival meetings. The Baptist and Methodist churches would schedule their revivals at different times so that their congregations could attend both. In the weeks leading up to each revival, the pastor and deacons would visit the members of every white family in Plains who had not yet trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. An outside preacher would be invited in for the week, and there would be two services each day, one in the morning especially for housewives, and one in the evening for everyone. It was at one of these revival services when Jimmy was 11 that he put his trust in Jesus Christ. Jimmy received an appointment to the U.S. Navy Academy, Naval Academy, graduating in 1946. He then married his high school sweetheart, Rosalind Smith, and spent the next seven years in the Navy. <clears throat> However, when his father died in 1953, he resigned his commission to return home to run the family farm and peanut business. In addition to successfully taking over the family business, Carter was elected to the state legislature as a Democrat. This is where it all devolves in 1962 and 1964. Carter then ran unsuccessfully for governor of Georgia in 1966 and was very discouraged by his defeat. 
he asked his sister Ruth Carter Stapleton to go for a walk with him in the woods. As they talked, Ruth convinced him that he would never be really happy until he made Jesus Christ the most important thing in his life. <clears throat> the following year, 1967, proved to be the spiritual turning point. As he later said, I began to realize that my Christian life, which I had always professed to be preeminent, had really been a secondary interest in my life, and I formed a very close, personal, intimate relationship with God through Christ. Carter was elected governor of Georgia in 1970. After completing his term, he launched a campaign for president, and on July 14, 1976, he received the Democrat nomination for president of the United States. In the election, he soundly defeated <laughs> President Gerald Ford, the Republican candidate. Carter's administration produced mixed reviews. I would say completely poor reviews, but that's just yeah. me. He persuaded Israel and Egypt to agree to the Camp David Peace Accord, but his White House years were also plagued with inflation, unemployment, and above all, the Iran hostage crisis. In Carter's run for re-election in 1980, Ronald Reagan won a landslide victory, criticizing Carter for ineptitude and a lack of leadership. In spite of the challenges he faced as president, Jimmy Carter, here it is, was perhaps the most dedicated Christian to ever occupy the White House. I couldn't believe it when I read that. Reflection, should a person vote for a candidate just because he is a Christian? Many voters did so, voting for Jimmy Carter in 1976 and then abandoned him for Ronald Reagan in 1980. To what extent should a candidate's religious beliefs influence our vote? Galatians 5.25, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Okay, so Jimmy Carter was a Democrat. He supports abortion. He supports all of the ideology of the left. And this is one of the most poor commentaries I've ever read, but I thought I'd read it anyway. Um, it's fine that he's a Christian. It's fine that he believes what he believes, uh, which I'm not really sure. You know, he, he's kind of a works-based guy, if you know his theology. Um, I don't know much about him, but I do know that uh, he, he, he seems to have a, a bent for wanting to work his way to heaven rather than Christ himself. I don't know that for sure, but that's social, social, that's right. He's a, a social gospel is a, exactly right. And uh, so I, I would dispute their claim that he was the most Christian president in the United States. We've had a lot of really good Christian presidents that either became Christians uh, later in life or, you know, whatever, or they were from their birth. Um, but uh, that statement at the end, just, what are you thinking? Anyway, um, there you go, Jimmy Carter. Um, okay, um, last week, before we get into the prayers, last week we had pizza. And I always try to remember to thank people that help out with that. And we got sidetracked with something during the class. And so um, Steve Haggard, Maya, and Lee, and Marissa, Melissa Morales all gave some money for pizza. And they actually gave enough between the three of them so we can have pizza again at some point. But I wanted to thank them because they said specifically, I'd like you to do something for the church for pizza. So thank you all. And I apologize for not saying that last week. Okay, then we have congratulations to Tom McCarthy. He's a guy I've known for a long time. He was a, he's a retired police officer up in Washington State. And he yesterday became a grandpa with Alana McCarthy. And so uh, he was very excited. He sent me this email this morning, and uh, he's, he's a great guy, and you can tell he's very happy about being grandpa. Um, uh, Steve, uh, somebody named Steve. Oh, yeah, Steve. He, um, he's going to be having heart surgery on 29 
July. So we want to keep Steve in prayer. Um, he's going to have, uh, it's going to be open heart and he's going to, you know, have some things done that need to be corrected. And uh, uh, despite his casual demeanor, his happy attitude, I'm sure that he's concerned about it. Don't be, okay? It, to live is uh, Christ, Christ and to die is game. Thank you. That's, <laughs> so I'm not worried about it. One way or another, I get to spend eternity with you. So I'm very happy, but I will pray that, uh, or we will pray that you will come through with flying colors. Um, Chan Yun uh, had four stents today. He's still okay, but he and his family are not believers. So I think the more important thing is to pray for he and his family as far as uh, coming to Christ and also for his heart to uh, fully recover from four stents. And then um, Texas is having, if you don't know, many parts of Texas are having a severe drought. And so the whole, uh, what is it called? The Southwest, the whole Southwest is pretty dry, uh, but we wanna keep those people in prayer. And then Jim Dwyer is not here. And so it tells me, I did not email him today, but it tells me that he is still not able to be here because I know he loves to come to church. And so we wanna to continue to pray for Steve uh, and Jim and also um, for Linda who has to stay home with Jim. And he's <laughs> probably, when he's not able to get up and do things, I, if he's like me, he's probably not easy to live with. If he's not like me, then he's fine but we wanna keep both of them in prayer for peace and contentment in the house and for him to get uh, well enough so he can hobble back into church. So there you go. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to pray for all these people, to thank you for the blessings of the pizza that some have provided and also just for your hand to be upon us and during this class and that uh, we would pray that the doctrine would be proper, that it would not be in any way something that you are not approving of. And if it is not, I would pray that you would alert us to that uh, so that we would not teach something that is not in accord with your will of this precious word. Um, Lord, uh, certainly we're thankful for having Brent and Tammy Spray visiting. They just arrived today from Texas and it's good to see them again. And we're grateful about that. And we pray that their time will be a blessing and that they will travel safely back to Texas as well. So Lord, uh, we lay these things in front of you and ask that you just be attentive to them. And Lord, we're very grateful, very grateful for what you have done through Jesus Christ. We're just in awe of that. And we love you, we thank you for it, and we praise you in his name, amen. Okay, so we have, just in case you are online watching right now, we have what's called a thunderstorm that's coming. I, it, we can hear, it's getting louder by the minute. And so if the thunderstorm takes out the power, don't panic, Google didn't censor us, it's just that we lost power and that means we lost the live stream. But other than that, we'll hope that things will just continue without any interruption and we'll be able to have a class here. Um, we are in the book of Colossians. We got Sergio reading today because Jim is still not here and Sergio has been filling in and he's been practicing his posture, he's been practicing his uh, uh, everything. He's really been doing a good job for us. So um, we have, Hello, how are you? We're doing well, we're just getting started. Come on in, how's your father doing? He's okay, good, praise the Lord. Okay, um, uh, Colossians 1 verse eight, but if you wanna start earlier, like if there's a paragraph or something, wherever you want. Yeah, yeah, uh, start with seven. Okay. Just as you learned it from, learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Okay, this one says, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. 
So obviously you're reading the wrong version there, sir. So I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> he takes me way too seriously. What's that? That was good, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. One eight. Uh, this is referring to Epaphras of the previous verse. He had come to Paul with uh, a word concerning those at Colossae. When he came, he had, as Paul says, declared to us your love. The word declared gives the sense of made manifest. He had brought the love of the body to light for Paul and Timothy to understand the wonderful fellowship which had delivered. I better read that again. Ah, the wonderful fellowship which had developed there. This love is, as Paul notes, in the spirit. The love among them was more than a sense of general, natural affection, but rather it was a love deeply rooted in what Christ had done for them, bringing them into the family of God and the body of believers. The Spirit had confirmed this to them, and this is the good news that would, was brought to the ears of Paul and Timothy. Certainly, it was a point of great rejoicing to them. So there you go with that. Very short commentary on this verse, life application. It is not unusual for us to get a bit jaded in the church as we show up and are just one of the many faces in the congregation. However, each person there who is called on Christ is a child of God through adoption. If we can remember this as we interact with our brothers and sisters, it would be a great help in putting aside petty differences and thus working together for the common good within the church. So it, it's not always easy to get along with everybody in the church. I understand that. I was uh, stewing over some things not church-related today, but some people that just rub me the wrong way, and I think I just, ah, uh, you know. Uh, and that's people just don't always get along. That's just the way it is. But um, uh, in the end, if, especially if you're in a work environment and you kind of have to get along with people, or at least you have to not be at enmity with them, and uh, so it's just great that I'm no longer in the work environment because when I don't get along with somebody, there's just, I, I, it robs me of my sleep. It robs me of my joy. You know, I'm like, what's the matter with this person? <laughs> so if you have somebody like that in your, your sphere of employment and you go through that, you are not alone. I went through that all the time. I would try my best to at least make friends with people and not have enmity. And some people are just, they, they just are there to rub everybody wrong. And uh, the ones that were always the toughest were with me were the contrarians. If you walked outside and you said, oh, what a beautiful blue day, they'd say, oh, it's going to rain in an hour. It's just a crummy day. Or if, if you say, we're going to paint the wall blue, he says, it'll look better black. I mean, whatever you say, they have something else to say. Those are the ones I really struggled with because there's no winning with them. No matter what you say, there's always going to be a negative that is thrown out or something different than what the people around him want. But it, there are people like that. You just have to live with them. I hope that you are not a contrarian because everybody around you can't stand you, whether you know it or not. <laughs> just the way it is. I, I it just sorry about that. But anyway, um, yeah. So uh, especially in the church. And one of the things is, and I, I I know that this is kind of something I bring up from time to time. But if you are in a church and you, you're not getting along with somebody or you whatever, it is so easy in America. There's 18,000 churches within like two miles of in most towns. You know, you just walk in, well, I'm just going to go to another church. And it's very easy to just 
find yourself moving from church to church just because you can't assimilate with other people. And that doesn't resolve anything. In the end, you're the one that's being harmed because you're not getting a, a you know a solid foundation with the people you're uh, supposed to be worshiping with. You may be getting bad doctrine simply because you don't want to be at a church that has somebody that's an irritant. But uh, if you can just kind of work it out with people, it's a really good thing. It's really helpful, and that is what Paul would ask of us here. So there you go with that. Okay, Sergio? Okay. Got, whoops. I'm not the contrarian, right? No, you're, not a, you're definitely not a contrarian. <laughs> Sergio is one of the least contrarian people I know on the planet. Verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, this one is exactly the opposite at the end. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Oh. So they turned it exactly around 100% the opposite. Con contrary. They're a contrarian, yeah. <laughs> That's right, they're contrarians. Okay, 1-9. Uh, let's see here. This takes us right back to verse verses 3 through 8. Paul had said in verse 3, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying for you, uh, praying always for you. After that, he gave his reason for this thanks. Now, using that same list, he says, for this reason also. The same thing that brought thanks to the hearts of Paul and Timothy is the thing which now brings something else along with it. Before he tells what it is that he is referring to, he says, since the day we heard it. As soon as the news came to their ears, and even until the present moment, this is held true. And that thing is that they do not cease to pray for you. That's Paul's words. They do not cease to pray for you. They weren't just thankful for the good news that they had heard, but they began to pray for those who they were thankful for. Although this isn't necessary in all situations, Paul next explains what the prayers are for. He says it is to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. These words here set up the tra train of thought for all of the rest of the epistle. The question must be, how can someone be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding without being properly instructed in it? Paul's words ahead will help lead them on this path. They may have had a copy of the Old Testament writings available to them if there were Jews among them who had converted to Christ, but they probably had no instruction on the doctrines of Christ outside of their instruction from Epaphras. Now they would need that instruction lest they fall into the heresies which were already coming into being at the time. As I said last week, the book of Colossians, like most of the letters in the New Testament, is written to refute heresies which had already come into existence. And Paul may not even exactly say that. He may not say, well, we have people that are teaching blah, blah, blah. But you can tell by the way he brings in a subject that he is telling them that we have told you this or you have heard this and you either misunderstood it or somebody is twisting it, and so I'm giving you the proper explanation of it, okay? Or they had just never been told of it, and people had come in and told them, and 
you know, because Epaphras didn't obviously tell them everything that uh, they needed to know about Jesus. Okay, but this is the purpose of the epistles is to keep people from heresy. And as I said, I mentioned it right here, I'll read it again. It says, how can someone be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding without being properly instructed in it? Okay, today, you know, I was thinking about this just, I don't know, it must have been this morning when I was working. What was I doing? Um, uh, what was I doing? Oh, I was rounding up weeds this morning. So that's what I was doing. Um, because when I'm either blowing with the leaf blower, which I do on Wednesday mornings, or when I round up or mow, that's when I have nothing else to do except think. And I was thinking about a video I saw a long time ago. This uh, Catholic guy, he uh, was saying that um, uh, we are Catholics because we believe the church has the proper instruction for us. And he says the Protestants, and he's really getting down on the Protestants, believe in the, um, he had a term for it, the uh, uh, where you have scripture and you learn scripture and you interpret scripture. And he says that is not the right way to do it. He says that is uh, that leads to all kinds of heresies. It leads to all kinds. And that's true. That leads to all kinds of heresies. But that is what God would ask us to do is to be independent thinkers. And I'm not saying don't learn heresies. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that God does not want us to listen to a body which is already apostate. Then this guy's attitude was that the Roman Catholic Church has the doctrine for all Christians for all time. They have set the doctrine, and therefore for us to be a, uh, a group of people that read scriptures and interprets ourselves is wrong. And it's exactly the opposite. God has given us the word of God so that we can read it and so that we can come to find Jesus. And then from there, build up our theology and learn from other people as well. It's not just one group that decides what the doctrine is and everybody else has to listen to them. Because when that is the case, that is where heresy will inevitably take over. Because that body will have bad doctrine at some point or another. And that's why I pray every single week. If I have something that's wrong, I would like to know that it's wrong. And please open my eyes to that, Lord, somehow. Okay? Uh, and as I say, and people might get upset about it, but I say there are some things that I am not going to change my doctrine on because it is correct. Things like eternal salvation and stuff. There's no point in arguing that one because the Bible is explicit, okay? But there are certain things that maybe I'm teaching which are wrong. But you cannot know. Here's the point I was getting to with that. You cannot know how can someone be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding without pro being properly instructed in it. You cannot know God's will unless you know the Bible. Now, it is possible that you could know God's will by going to a church that has proper doctrine and them teaching you that. But you don't know if that is true or not because you don't know the Bible to say what they're teaching is wrong. So you are putting all of your hope and all of your trust in a church and you have no idea if they have proper doctrine or not. Like I said, you may happen to be in a church where the guy is beautifully grounded in the right doctrine of scripture. Well, you would be the exception. I can assure you of that. There are not a lot of churches out there that are fully grounded in proper doctrine. There, you know, there may be, you know, we'll say if there's uh, 150,000 churches in America, there may be 500 or 800 that really have 100% good doctrine. Uh, that would be just a, a very small number. And you're not going to know that you are being given that good doctrine unless you already know the Bible. And you can say, this guy, what he says actually matches the word and he's doing it in context. So as I say, week after week after week, please read your Bible. 
You don't want to be susceptible to somebody else's teaching until you know that they are teaching correctly or not. And then there's always the, the uh, obvious uh, argument that uh, you, you may know the Bible pretty well, and you hear somebody that is very convincing in Scripture, and actually they're not convincing at all. They are really heretics, but they've taken the word and they've put it together so well that you're confused about it. And that's why you need to keep reading your Bible and you need to check what you're being taught. Then I'll give you a perfect example of this. If you have ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness, they will get you into a little box. They'll get you and they'll say, well, what about this? What about, and you have no way to refute them because you don't know the word well enough. And that's a problem because they know certain parts of the Bible so well that they will attack you at it when you may not be versed in that. And all of a sudden you think, have I been wrong about this all along? Well, no, you haven't. They are a cult and what they teach is aberrant, but they know it so well, you think, how do I defend against this? And that's why you wanna keep reading your Bible, keep studying theology, keep in looking into these things, but you can't do it unless you know it, all right? And one thing I would never do is to trust Charlie Garrett. That's one thing I would never do. Okay, I'm here to give you instruction, but when you go home, it is up to you to check out what I have said, and it is up to you to read the Bible more and to say, does that fit with what the Word says? Is dispensationalism true? Is eternal salvation true? Are all of these doctrines that I bring up correct or not? And you got to read the Bible to know. You have to read the Bible to know. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, We'll start right here. Now, they would need that instruction lest they fall into the heresies which were already coming into being at the time. To have the knowledge of his will means that of his will for us in Christ. This is certain because Christ is God's will for all humanity. To have a faulty view of Christ would then lead to a faulty view of God's will. That's all there is to it. This is Jesus Christ is the central focus of every single bit of this word. He is the purpose and point of God doing what he has done. Here we are in the stream of time. God created us. We fell. And immediately after the fall, he says, I'm going to send somebody in the world to correct this. And everything about scripture from that point on, everything deals with Jesus Christ in one way or another. Okay. Obviously there are other side issues that he's dealing with. He's got Israel in there and he's got this, and he's got these different things that are going on. A covenant with Abraham. He's got a covenant with Israel. He's got a covenant with David and his house and all these things going on. But ultimately it is all leading us to the knowledge of Christ. So if you, it's a, this is certain because Christ is God's will for all humanity. To have a faulty view of Christ would then lead to a faulty view of God's will. Okay, I did a, a series on Esther, okay? We have Brent. He did a series on Esther. And, you know, I'm not one to listen to a lot of sermons. I don't have a lot of time for it. But I have free time sometimes, especially when I'm doing uh, news articles for the CG Report where that's I can listen to something like that. You know, when I'm doing other work, when you're typing an email, you cannot listen to a sermon and get what is being said at the same time. Okay, but I do listen to his sermons. Whenever they come out, he did an entire series on Esther. And what is the main point of all of the book of Esther? The main point. Several, but. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the main point, not the not the lesser points, not. I've been talking about it here. There you go. Your wife got it. Okay, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but yeah. the main point of the book of Esther is Jesus, 
Okay, that's what I was looking. I'm not looking for the lesser issues because he talks about a lot of lesser issues in there. He talks about all kinds of stuff in there. But the main point is Jesus. How does this point to the coming Redeemer? How is this typologically anticipating Christ? All of these things are in there, and everything ultimately is telling us about Jesus. Okay, you read the book of Ruth, you're going to hear about Jesus. As a matter of fact, I just finished Ruth again in my morning reading uh, this morning. And, you know, I, it was just so good to read that book. And when you know the symbolism, all the characters and what they're pointing to and how it all leads to Jesus, you know, the story, you know, the main point of Ruth, if you just look at the main point as what's going on is the redemption of a young lady from Moab, okay? But ultimately, I'm talking about the main point is Jesus. Everything in Ruth, everything is pointing us to what God is doing in Christ. And once again, to have a faulty view of Christ would then lead to a faulty view of God's will, okay? The Jehovah's Witnesses have a faulty view of Christ. They believe that he is a created being. God sent his uh, son into the world after he created him to die. That doesn't give God any glory at all. I'm sorry. If he created, he, you know, he could have created Chewbacca and done that, okay? That is not what happened. God himself became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, Okay, so um, uh, the Mormons believe that Jesus was a man who became a God. And all Mormons believe that they will someday be a God. They are going to run their own little universe and they're going to be their own little redeemer and all this crazy stuff that's going on in their theology. You know, and this is not a side issue, folks. There are, what, millions by now Mormons. There are millions of them. And they really believe what they've been told. So to have a faulty view of Christ would then lead to a faulty view of God's will. Whatever you are doing, you want to remember that Christ Jesus is the central focus of everything that God is doing. Okay, if you get that, then you're going to get all of the little side issues much more readily into shape. Okay, we're going right now through the book of Jonah, and I've said it, uh, Joshua, and I've said it several times that when we get to Joshua 3, 4, 5, and I just finished 6 last week, and uh, it, it, there's just picture after picture after picture of what God is doing. Now, I will admit that Israel is a huge part of the unfolding scenario. But ultimately, Israel is a people because of Jesus. They were selected to bring in Jesus into the world. They were selected to herald their Messiah. And when they didn't, God didn't reject them. They were selected to go through the punishment that was given to them in Deuteronomy 28 to glorify God because he is faithful to his covenant and he will bring them back into his good graces and they will call on Jesus. It's all about Jesus and the glory that God is getting through him. So be assured of this. As long as you understand that, everything is going to be much better in your theology. Okay, this knowledge is to be in all wisdom. That's his words, in all wisdom. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's right. To have that and then to grow in that fear of the Lord is the proper path. Uh, you know, once in a while I will get a email from somebody and I'll say, um, well, I don't understand why we should fear God. Isn't he your father? Isn't he your, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, This is true. But do we fear our fathers? Well, yeah, if we do wrong, we fear our fathers. He is there to correct us. He's there to guide us. But he is also there to discipline us and to teach us what is right and to keep us from going down a wrong path, okay? You want to talk about bad parenting? 
this past week, I posted it on uh, the CG report. If you go there, you'll see all kinds of stuff that I post every day, and it's a little annoying, I'm sure, to some people. But um, one of them was two little children about this big that were cursing police officers and slapping at them. They, they weren't two years old, and they're doing this, and that's bad parenting. That is not good parenting. Those parents are not good parents, and I have no problem. If somebody wants to get angry at me for saying that, that's the truth, okay? There is no proper discipline of those children that they would show such a disrespect for the people that are trying to protect them, that are serving them, okay? So uh, th that is bad parenting. A good parent will discipline his children when they do wrong. And we are to fear the Lord because the Lord is to be feared, all right? We don't just assume that because we are saved by that that we're gonna go up to heaven someday and fist bump him and say, hey, you know, no. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely glorious. And we will never be in a position where we will be able to just, you know, treat him with anything less than the greatest of reverence. We are to fear the Lord our God. So okay. many people want to equate fear. They say, oh, it's, it's To be awe. scared. Well, no, they say, no, you just oh. have to be awed. Right. Just, you're not, and I'm like, no. No, awe is a different word. Fear first. That's right. I feared my father. That's right. Until I got older and older and older. And then when I got to be an adult, I realized all the things that he did for me. I began to do things because I loved him, not because I feared him. But at first, I did things that he told me to do because I feared him That's when right. I was young. That's right. And we need to have that reverent fear for the Lord. We need to. If we don't, then he becomes a tool for us to use rather than us to be tools molded into his image. And so that's absolutely right. And it's not awe. Fear and awe are two separate words. They're different words and they both have different meanings. We are to have awe for the Lord as well, but we're to fear the Lord. Okay, to have that and then to grow in that fear of the Lord is the proper path. The book of Ecclesiastes shows the contrast between earthly wisdom and that which is heavenly. The prayers of Paul and Timothy were for those in, Col in Colossae to have this heavenly wisdom. Um, when you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes, it's uh, sometimes you read it and you think, I'm not sure what he's saying because he seems to contradict himself from one page to the next. It's like, you know, uh, it, it just, when you're reading it, it can be very hard to understand unless you understand that he's talking from a couple different reference points. Life under the sun is not the place to put your life's hope, okay? Life under the sun is fleeting, it's transitory, it's carnal, it's fleshly. Life under the heavens is living your life understanding that there is a God who will hold you accountable for your actions. If you're living your life under the sun, then you have no fear of God. You have no uh, understanding of what it means to have a right relationship with him. But when you're living under the heavens, then you understand all the time that God is there, he is holding you account for the things you're doing. Um, one of my friends sent me an article today um, from uh, about the guy that, what is it, Studio 54? Is that what it is up in New York? Is that what it was called? Anyway, um, it's the guy, I think his name was Flesher or something, and it, this guy lived his life under the sun. His whole life was wasted in excess in you know all the things that they did up in New York snorting cocaine every morning to wake up and then taking Valiums to be able to sleep at night and all they did was drugs all the time you know and there's women coming in and going out and it's just staying up and partying and what did he do he just went and had himself suicided over in Europe 
because he's 82 years old and he can't, you know, control himself anymore. And so he can't walk and all this kind of stuff. And so, and he's like, well, I don't believe in the hereafter, but I can't wait to see what it's like to die. And I thought, well, that's kind of a stupid thing because if there's no hereafter, then you're not going to know when you're dead, right? The whole thing was just, but that's what happens when you don't keep your priorities on the Lord. If you understand that there is a Lord and that you should be living for the Lord, then everything you're going to be doing is with the knowledge that he is there evaluating what you're doing. So live your life as if it is under the heavens, not life under the sun. And the same premise that he uses in one thing that he says, well, you know, don't do this. And then he says, do this. And they're the same thing. And you're like, why? It's because you can do this when you're doing it to glorify your heavenly father. But if you do it for yourself, then you're not giving anybody glory and you're just wasting your time. That's kind of the premise of the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, in a nutshell. It's a great book. It's a wonderful book. And how does it end? How does the book of Ecclesiastes end? Okay, this is, I, I don't want to misquote it. So, yes, that's it. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Okay, um, I want to keep that in the proper uh, uh, Psalms. Come on, Charlie. Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Psalms, Proverbs. It's really small, so there it is, Song of Solomon, and one more back. And so he goes on. Uh, yeah, this is the conclusion of the whole man. That's right. I could have quoted it by now, but okay. Um, he's going through all this. I'm going to start at verse 9, though, just because. Um, uh, actually, we'll go to verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. He started the book with that thought. Now he's ending the book with that thought. He says, everything is vanity. If you're living your life under the sun, there is absolutely no meaning. Okay? If everything is vanity, then what he says at the very end doesn't seem to make any sense. But he's telling you, what you are doing right now in this life is all vanity. But there is a God. Okay? And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Well, he just got done somewhere back there saying, you know, I wrote all these proverbs and I've done all of this stuff. And well, what's the purpose of it all? So he seems to be contradicting himself. He's not. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here it is. He's summing up everything of his whole life of indulgence and overindulgence and then thinking about the nature of God. There it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, we have to remember that Solomon was a man under law. He was during the dispensation of the law. And so his uh, keeping of the commandments is not the same as our keeping of the commandments. Okay? The commandment is fulfilled in Christ, it is annulled in Christ, it is set aside in Christ, it is nailed to the cross. When in the New Testament, when you hear about the commandment, and when, especially John writes about it more than all of them, he's talking about, you keep the commandment, keep the commandment. He's speaking about Christ. He's speaking about understanding that Jesus is the Christ. Here it is. Let me read it to you. This is the, this is the commandment. This is where it all is summed up. It's right here because Jesus has come to take care of the law of Moses. 
He's come to take that out of our way, that bondage, that, that yoke that was set upon the people of Israel to teach us a lesson. And then what does he say? He we, uh, comes here and he said, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Well, the commandments were all works. It was all doing this and that. And Jesus is saying there's something else to do nowadays. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. He sent Christ into the world to do the work that we can't do. And so our commandment is to be obedient to Christ. And how do we do that? We do that by going into the New Testament. We understand what Christ did. The book of Acts kind of explains how the church began. It gives some, you know, a few things for the church to do or to not do, but it's not a book of instruction in that sense. It is a book that is given to give us the history of the establishment of the church, how they took the scriptures, and how they worked them into the theology that Christ did the things he did. And then from there, we get the epistles. And the epistles are where we find our instruction. Okay, and the instruction is something that it's not a body of law like you would think of the law of Moses. Okay, law by law is the knowledge of sin. That's right. Okay, well, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that we are no longer being, having our sins counted against us. Or this version says they are no longer imputing our sins to us. If this was a body of law that was set and, set and rigid and fixed like the law at Sinai, then we would sin. And if we sinned, then we would, and I'm talking about having sin imputed, then we would no longer be saved because that is what separated Adam from God in the first place. But because God has done, the, Jesus has done the work of God, we now do the work of God by putting our trust in Christ. And then we should live for him. We should live our lives for him. But that is the work that we do. And at the same time, you can use the same precept that Solomon did in the Old Testament because it's a book of wisdom. Fear God and keep his commandments. We are to fear God and we are to keep the commandment, which is Christ. Christ is the commandment, okay? When we're in Christ, you're not going to come out of Christ, but we are to think about him. We're to meditate on him, to talk to him. You know, I don't care. Well, nowadays it doesn't matter. People walk around and they've got these things in their ears and they're talking. You don't know if the guy's crazy or if he's talking to somebody on the phone. But it used to be if somebody walked around and talked to himself, they'd say, that guy is crazy. Well, I walk around and talk to myself all the time and I don't have anything in my ear. But I'm not really talking to myself. I'm talking to the Lord. And I don't care if people hear me saying it or not. It's my communication with him. And when I'm mowing the lawn and I think of something, I say, well, what do you think about that, Lord? And we'll have a conversation, me one-sided. He's not answering, okay? But, um, uh, the what? Yeah, one of those. So he's not crazy when he's out talking, okay? He's listening and talking to somebody. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so, you know, think on the Lord. Think on the Lord. Let him be the focus of your life at all times, all right? And that is what you would want to do. Okay, we're going to go on. Um, the Paul, prayers of Paul and Timothy were for those in Colossae to have this heavenly wisdom. But their prayers, uh, did I read that? Yeah, but their prayers were not only for wisdom, but also spiritual understanding. This is the ability to put things together. Okay, we have wisdom. Wisdom is um, uh, uh, knowledge is an understanding of things. Wisdom is the proper application of them. Okay, but spiritual understanding is the putting of things together. 
not only should the should the Christian have wisdom but also the ability to take that wisdom and to be discerning in it okay here's a good example of that so you can understand that who was the wisest man who ever lived Bible yeah it, it says it explicitly he was the wisest man that ever lived Solomon that's right okay did Solomon blow it in his life yeah. completely he completely blew his wisdom so he has knowledge he has knowledge that other people didn't the Queen of Sheba came up and she was blown away by his knowledge he talked about things and she said how happy are the people that are your attendants and they get to listen to you all day long blah 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 okay so he's very smart he has wisdom he knows how to take that knowledge and put it together in a wise way so he can build great buildings so that he can make aqueducts and he can have water where the the desert never had water before he can do all these things showing a wisdom that went beyond anybody else he knew that if two women had children and one of the children died and they were arguing over who was the true mother he knew what to do about that okay he demonstrated wisdom and yet he lacked spiritual understanding and what did he do when he got older his first off he didn't obey it says right there fear god and obey his commandments well he didn't do that it's like the book of deuteronomy i can't remember the exact chapter we went through it it was almost written the warnings, you know, don't ha multiply your horses, never go back to Egypt, don't multiply gold and silver, don't multiply wives. And every single thing that is written in that, Solomon did. Right away, at the very beginning of his life, he multiplied gold and silver in Jerusalem. He had wives, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines, okay? This guy did not listen to, he did not have spiritual understanding. Okay, and because he lacked spiritual understanding, he didn't listen to the word of the Lord. The women tore his heart away from the Lord and he was out sacrificing to the goddess of the Ammonites and the blah, 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 all these different gods. He wasted his wisdom because he didn't apply it with spiritual understanding. So it's not just wisdom is not the end of the game. Knowledge is good, wisdom is better, spiritual understanding applying those together to have spiritual understanding is where it is at okay this ability to put this is the ability to put things together solomon did not put things together not only should the christian have wisdom but also the ability to take that wisdom and to be discerning in it solomon he may have had it but he blew it or he just lacked it though the word trinity is not in the bible Christians should be able to discern that this it, that it is a truth which is clearly presented there. Where is my pen? I, oh, there it is. Um, I need to make a correction. Sorry about that. Um, it is a truth which is clearly presented there and which can logically be deduced from various passages. Right now, Maya, she's doing the Bible Bites. Okay, she does two every single day. She does one on Sunday. And right now, she's doing... Uh, one from the book of, I think it's, we're still in Ephesians or Philippians. She's doing it there anyway, but she's doing um, a set of uh, Bible bites from the doctrine sermons and she calls them doctrine bites. Okay. And over the past week, she's been posting from the sermon that I did on the Trinity. Now, Maya does this. She just does it. She, I didn't ask her to do it. She asked, can I do it? And I'm like, if you want to, it's going to be a lot of work. And, you know, she just does it. So I'm very grateful about that. 
but she's been doing them from the Trinity sermons. And this is what I was talking about. So if you want to see them, they're only three, four, five minute long uh, parts of that sermon. And I talk about exactly that there. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but Christians should be able to discern that it is a truth which is clearly presented there and which can logically be deduced from various passages. Well, if you don't understand how that's the case, then go watch those Bible Bites and you'll see it. If not, just read the Bible and say, how can I know if the Trinity is true? I've heard this word and before you go, you know, I don't want you to get confused because if you don't understand the Trinity, I, the one she posted last night had some of the heresies on it, like, um, you know, using an egg or using water, ice, and steam, okay? People try to use these things to explain the Trinity and they don't work, okay? And if you use them and you think about them incorrectly, then you'll actually devolve into heresy because God, you know, uh, modalism, is one of the heresies. Modalism says, well, basically, God um, is the father, and then he's out on a stage, and he's doing his father stuff, and then he walks behind there, and he puts on another mask, and he comes out, and I'm the son now, and then he comes out later, and he says, okay, I'm the Holy Spirit. That's modalism, different modes of God. That's a heresy, okay? But at least you can know that there are three aspects of God, okay? A father, a son, and a Holy Spirit you just deduce it from what it says in the Bible. The, the same attributes that are attributed to God the Father are attributed to God the Son, and they're attributed to God the Holy Spirit. So you can at least know these things. Then what you need to do is to develop proper theology. Is modalism correct? Is this, you know, correct? Is this um, one of the things that people say, well, is Christians believe in a triad? Can anybody tell me the difference between a triad and a trinity? That's right. Triad is three gods sitting on three little thrones, and that's a triad. The Bible does not teach that, and Christians do not espouse that. That is not what we teach. We teach a trinity within the Godhead. Three persons, and as I said, uh, or you know, I said it in the sermon last night uh, that she posted, is that uh, Augustine came up with the word person, and he said, we got to say something, and it's not a great word to use, but we have to. There, there has to be a way of defining it. When we think of a person, we think of one here, one here, and one here, and that's not what it is. It's three persons within one essence. Okay. And that's one of the most common things I would get from Israeli Jews. Oh yes. I would tell them about Jesus immediately. Oh no, no, we believe in one God. That was what? the first thing Muslims they would say because they think that Christians yeah. believe in three gods. Three God, absolutely it's not. It's almost like that's yeah. what they think. Yeah. Muslim, yeah. Muslims. Absolutely. So what I did in there is I gave an example of how you can have a trinity within a singularity. Does anybody remember the example I used? It's so time. simple. Time. That's right. You got past, present, and future. All three are time. All three of them is, have always existed. From the moment that time came into existence, there's always been a past, a present, and a future. Okay. It, and you have the future has one purpose, the present has another purpose, the past has another purpose. And if you look at them, they have the same purposes that are defined in the Godhead in the Bible. So if you go back and watch those doctrine bites, you'll be able to see that. It's a great example that has no heresy in it. It's just simply what God has done. He has revealed himself in uh, the universe you know, through creation, that's called general revelation, but the universe itself is made up of time, space, and matter. And then time is made up of future, past, and pres uh, present, yes, future, present, and past. And then um, space is made up of length, breadth, and width. 
and then um, uh, matter is made up of energy in motion producing phenomena. So you've got these, these trinity within a trinity. But time is the best example of the Godhead, by far, that you're going to come across. Anyway, um, so if you do those things, you will develop spiritual understanding. That's the point of this right here. Okay. Um, they also appear together. The what? They appear together in some passages. Oh, absolutely. That Yeah, absolutely. And so does past, present, and future. We're all right here at one moment. Okay, right now we have a future. Right now we have a past. And right now we have a present. Okay? And so that is God showing that... How am I going to reveal myself to the people of the world without any contradictions and yet in a way that they can understand? Okay, so there you go. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, it's, the Trinity is presented there. It can be logically deduced from various passages. And the same is true with other major doctrines as well. Okay, doctrines and theology did not just pop into existence. It's all there in the Bible, okay? Or it is all confirmed there in the Bible, because not every theology that we teach may be in the Bible, but it's something that people will say, this is the nature of God, and we can know this, and then the Bible will confirm that, okay? Um, but um, what was I just going to say about that? Oh, yeah, um, these things didn't just pop into existence. People read the Bible, and they developed a, does anybody know what the term systematic theology? That's where somebody will take the Bible, and they will go through a system of developing theology from the Bible. John Calvin wrote a book on systematic theology, okay? Different people have done the same thing. They've sat down and they've gone through a system of developing theology, okay? And what you wanna do is you wanna read those theologies and you wanna say, does this match what the Bible says? Does this match what the Bible says? And you know, you can just, you can say, well, John Calvin is wrong in this and so I'm not gonna read him at all. But John Calvin actually had some insightful things that he thought of, okay? And he's got some quotes that are true. And so, you know, once in a while in a sermon, I don't do it very often, but I'll quote John Calvin, and somebody will inevitably email me and they'll say, how can you quote John Calvin? Well, because what he said is true, okay? It doesn't matter if the guy's theology is wrong, if what he said in that particular thing about, you know, Rahab the harlot will say, all right, he said something about her and it's true, well, then why not quote him? If it's insightful, you use it, okay? But... Uh, what you want to do is you want to uh, study theology, what are people presenting, and then from there you want to come to your conclusion, does this match the Bible? Not do I like this, not does this sound good to me, does this match the Bible? And when you read John Calvin, you'll find out that a lot of what he says does not match the Bible, okay? And so, you know, R.C. Sproul was a systematic theologian. All of these people have got these um, uh, riery. A lot of people like Charles Ryrie, okay? He's taught in a lot of schools. They've got the Ryrie textbook on this and that and one thing and another. He does a great job. And then you get to some parts of what he writes in his textbook for, you know, uh, whatever uh, theology proper. And you say, well, where did he get that from? That doesn't match at all. So you just take that and throw it out the window because Charles Ryrie is just a guy, okay? He's just a guy that developed his theology and some of the things that he says are incorrect. And when they are, when I, because I had to use the Ryrie textbook in, uh, up at SES, okay? But the ones that he was really wrong in, you can tell that he had a bias, a presuppositional bias. That means that he presupposed. It was something that he already believed, and so he put it into the Bible rather than took out what the Bible says. And you can tell that. 
when Charles Ryrie is wrong, it's because he was taught something when he was young and he was gonna go down with the ship with that. And I could give you some examples, but I'm not going to. But he was R-O-N-G, wrong, okay? So just that's just the way it is. Um, let's see here. The same is true with other major doctrines as well. Spiritual understanding is also speaking of that which is not correct. That Jesus Christ is God is plainly evident from even a cursory reading of the Bible. Therefore, to say that he is a created being, like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, is false. Spiritual understanding will reveal this. There's a guy that he does prophecy update, and a billion people watch him every single week, and he teaches that Jesus was created in Mary's womb. I'm sorry, that's a heresy. And therefore, he is a heretic, because Jesus was not created in Mary's womb. God united with humanity in Mary's womb. That's what happened. He didn't create a being in the womb of Mary, all right? If that was the case, and I clearly defend that in one of the doctrine sermons, I think it's in the Trinity one, but it may be another one. Anyway, that guy should not be listened to because if he can't get that fundamental, simple thing right, he's got a lot of problems with his theology in other areas. I guarantee it, I've never studied him, but I guarantee you that's true because that is such a fundamental thing. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, et cetera, right there in Luke chapter one, two, okay? And uh, it, it, it's, I think it's one, isn't it? I, I, now that you've said it, I've got to, uh, I, I, I don't want to have the wrong thing in here. I'm sure it's that he spoke to Mary in Luke one. I, I, I could be wrong. I, I just want to make sure that I'm right. Okay, it says the Holy Spirit, and the angel, yes, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Luke 1, 35. Um, uh, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. It doesn't say that he's going to create a being in her womb. As a matter of fact, if you read the Greek, the word is, uh, I can't, uh, it, it, it's basically symbiosis, okay? But that's not the word, okay? What it means is that there is a uniting. It's very clear. It does not mean he was created. It means that there is a uniting within her womb. Overshadow you, therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. He's not created. He is the Son of God because he is God incarnate. God united with human flesh. Therefore, he is fully God and he is fully man. Okay. Anyway, um, don't want to get into that too much. But uh, if somebody or some doctrine comes along and says something to you about the nature of Christ that does not sound right, it's probably not because you've been reading your Bible and you know enough to at least question it. Get online and start researching it. Because and it says through, all, through him all things were created. How could absolutely. he be created if through him already? Well, I, you don't read the Acts commentary every morning because if you did, you'd know the answer to that. I, I will show you uh, how that happened. Hang on a sec. Yeah, you're in big trouble, buddy. Um, uh, it, it's either just a couple days ago or it's coming out in the next couple days. But anyway. Um, I mean, that's probably what it is. <laughs> that could be it, yeah. Anyway, no, I, 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 think I've, I think it's already been published. But, oh, I'm going to the wrong book. We want, I, I, it, it's right here in the book of Colossians. And what I did is I used this as the life application at the end of it. And what I'll do is I'll read you this verse. And uh, what I did, actually what I did is I took this verse from about four different Bibles. And I, they all basically say the same thing. But one of them has something wrong with it. Um, I wish I could pull that up right now. I'm not going to. Um, I have I'll, all the versions here. Okay, go to Colossians 1, and I think it's verse 15. 15. Um, 1. He is the image of the invisible. Yeah, go to 16. Thank you, Burke. 
Yeah, for by him all. Th oh, go ahead. Um, you've got which, that in front which, of you. Which version? I can. I can have plenty uh, well, of them. No, all of them. Go to Bible Gateway. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, and not Bible Gateway. Go to uh, Bible Hub, and then go I to okay. the parallel, and Colossians one sixteen. Yeah, I'll take a second because I was in the. No, that's app. okay. You said you had it right in front of me. That's why oh, I. I that's I, why I'm having to do this right now. Click, yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> Bible Gateway. We're seeing. Okay, there they are. And you've got them all side by side. Yeah. Okay. One. What I want to read is one sixteen. And uh, do you have the? Um, uh, I'll read mine right now. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. We'll just stop right there. Okay. Now um, read the BLB if they have it. Yeah, they do. Okay. Uh, read the BLB. Because in him were in him were created all things in the heavens and upon the earth, the visible and the invisible. Okay. Now give me Young's. Is because in him were the all things created, those in the heavens and those upon the earth, those visible and those invisible. Okay, uh, the fourth one that I put in there, I, I, and I asked the people in this commentary, please read this and think on what you're reading. Okay, the, this one I'm just going to use this, but I'm going to, I don't know if this is exactly because it won't be in there. This is the New World. I've got it right in the back. I'm not going to go get it, but I, I'm going to use the New King James Version, and I'm going to make a change to it, and you'll hear it right away. For by him all other things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Anybody hear something wrong in there? Other. The word other. Okay, that's right. Now, um, when you read an old New World Testament uh, translation, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses, I got one back there. It's an older one. What do they do? It says, now all other, and they've got a bracket around there. A bracket means what? It's a, it does not belong in there. It's just put in there, okay? Well, what does that do when somebody reads that and they see that? What does that do? It makes them want to go talk to the elder. Why does it say other? Why does it say that? Because that doesn't belong in there. So what have they done with the New World Translation nowadays? They've just taken out the brackets. They've just changed the Word of God. Okay, so there you go. That's what they've done now. And so now when they read that, nobody questions anymore. Oh, well, what does this mean? Because this is New World Translation. It must be right because these are the great men of God that did this translation. And so they believe that by him all other things were created. Well, that goes against the um, uh, principle of contingency, one of the 12 first principles. A contingent being, mean a being that has been created, cannot create anything. If you just think it through, it's obvious on the surface. A being that has been created can create nothing. All we can do is rearrange things and tinker toys. That's all we can do. We cannot create anything, okay? And so uh, it's a violation of the laws of logic, but it's also a violation of scripture itself, okay? And then I give the life application based on that. You gotta be careful. You need to be careful about what is going on in scripture, what you're reading and the best thing for you to do is to read and to read and to read and I recommend you read many different translations read one in the morning read one at night read one during the day if you have time and when you finish it close it up put it on the shelf and go buy a different version and read that the one that I like the most is the one that I had him read the last which is Young's, Young's. it's even the structure was backwards other the or something because he's taking the Greek and he's giving you Young's literal translation 
and he, he's, it's very hard to read, but you're going to get a literal translation, and you're going to get an understanding of what was originally intended in those verses, if you can understand how it's formed in the Greek. And eventually, after reading for a while, you will be able to. And so that's what I'm reading. Actually, I'm reading the literal standard version that somebody gave me, um, which is uh, Robert Young's translation is public domain. That means that anybody can take it and they can use it in any way they want. There's no, you don't have to pay any anything on it, okay? And so the literal standard version said, we're gonna take Young's translation and we're going to just print it. And then we're gonna make a reason why we're changing it, which they really don't. They pretty much, you know, plagiarize it through the whole thing. And I shouldn't say plagiarize because it is public domain, but um, they do make a couple little changes in there and all, but it's still very close to Young's. And so, and it's a little more modern. It doesn't have the these and the thighs and that in there. So it's it's a good translation, and you're going to get the literal sense of it. So if you when have, I start, what sorry. when I started reading the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew the other times I was telling you, I was shocked how much of the English translations, most of them, uh, even New King James or King James, there's so much interpretation Absolutely. because the Hebrew is so difficult. Even for somebody who speaks Hebrew, it's so difficult, but when you read Young's, people say, oh, it's difficult to read, but that's the same way as you would get in Hebrew if you knew Hebrew. That's right. It's almost the same. So if somebody's saying, I'm reading Young's and it's complicated, well, if you could speak Hebrew and you read the Old Testament in Hebrew, it would be just Com as complicated. Just as complicated. So, so you might as well read yeah, Young's. You're getting and the kind of as close to the original as possible. Yeah, he does a great, that's... great job. I've, I, In the Hebrew, when I do the sermons, I have found very few times that he was wrong. He, and he has got a couple times where his translation was not right or he forgot an article like, you know, the God, he'll just say God, all right? But that's rare. He's usually very spot on. And uh, Robert Young was a great, great Bible scholar. He did his own concordance, just like uh, James Strong's, you know, concordance. He did his own. It's very nice. It's not very popular because it's a little harder to use than Strong's and Strong's is much more definitive by far. But um, if, if you just want to know the structure of the Hebrew or Greek and a real literal reading, get Young's. And you can read it right online. You can do it that way too. So um, another thing, you know, one of the things, I might as well bring it up before we go on, is that uh, when you are talking about the King James Bible and you get to somebody that is a King James only reader, they don't know what they're talking about. Okay, they already have proven that they don't understand uh, the Bible at all. Because if they did understand the Bible even a little bit, they wouldn't be King James only people. That's for certain. But um, one of the things that you can tell them is that the reason why it is uh, a very, very uh, espoused doctrine by some people is that King James is the only Bible is because of exactly the same reason I said about Young's. What did I say about Young's? It is what? It's public domain. It's open. It's free. And because of that, anybody can take the King James Version and they can print it for a dollar and they can sell it for $50. And if you sell a million Bibles a year, guess how much that is? It's $49 million you've made. And if you can convince people that the Bible that you're selling them is the only inspired version of God, the money will never stop rolling in because people go through Bibles, especially they just go through Bibles all the time or they want to give them as a present. This is a King James only Bible, you know, and the money that is made by those people is beyond comprehension because they have, they don't have to do any translating. It's, they didn't have to think anything through. They didn't have to do any hard work. They just simply copy the 
King James Version off the internet and go out and start printing Bibles. And even if you don't sell a lot, you still make a lot because that's the way it is. But uh, just so you know, people that appear to be pious and have your best interest usually are not, okay? Uh, question everybody and question everything. But, what do they call it authorized? Who authorized Okay, it? the authorized version, that goes back to when it was um, uh, authorized by King James. Okay, he was the one that authorized it for common use within, because, you know, the Germans had their own theology, and they, would, they broke away, say, from the Roman Catholic Church. Well, then the Roman Catholics are up in England, which we've read many times in this, the struggle between Catholicism and Protestantism in England, and all the queens that got their heads cut off and stuff because the next queen that comes along is suddenly a Roman Catholic, and she says, you're all Catholic again. Well, King James says, we are going to be Protestants. We're going to translate our own Bible. We're not going to go with Rome, and I'm going to authorize this version okay this is what you can use in the church of england not just that you can use you're going to use okay and uh there were at the time you know there were these things about um well do we do we baptize full immersion these people up in you know scotland say that we're supposed to be fully immersed and the people over in wales say that sprinkling is okay what do we do don't translate it just transliterated. So the word baptism is not translated. That's why we have the word baptism instead of immersion. It's because they didn't want to get into that debate. And so instead of getting into the debate, they just said, transliterate the word and we'll let the people worry about it. Okay? They're going to argue over it. So that's why we have the word baptism instead of people saying immersion. Okay? Because baptism means, anybody? Immersion. That's right. If, you, if a ship sinks, it baptizes. It, okay? That's it. So uh, just so you know that this is one of the things that they did with the King James Version is they did not get into arguments to upset somebody on this part of it. We don't want to upset the empire and have people rebelling. And so that, you know, they equivocated on things and they, they that's just the way it was. Okay. Baptism was the, today's reading. Yeah. Oh, oh today, the, the Acts. Yeah. Oh, good. I didn't know. Oh, that's right. Philip, we're there because I'm still, I'm, I'm already up in Saul's conversion. I, I'm typing right now. Uh, today, I typed the verse where uh, Ananias, the Lord said, I, I, and you know, Paul is, um, uh, he, well, no, not that's tomorrow. He said, um, a, a man named Paul has um, seen a vision where a man named Ananias is going to lay his hands on him. And so I want you to go to the street called Straight. And today was, but Lord. I've heard about this guy. You know, he's persecuting people. And so that was the verse that I typed today. So you're still back in Acts 8. And that's why I always get confused. What if I posted? What if I not? So it may be true that I haven't done uh, posted that one yet. So you're, you're, you're free from total blame right now. Anyway, um, uh, uh, there's another word that you will also hear with the King James Version, which is the received text. Have you heard that one? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, the textus receptus is the received text. And what that was is that Erasmus translated, he took all of these texts, these Greek texts, and he made a harmonious Greek text out of them. Okay, and when he submitted that to the printers, that was, they stamped it, received. It is the received text. So it doesn't mean it was received from God because that's what they'll tell you. It was received from God. That's not what that means, okay? It is the received text from Erasmus. Okay, so these words that they use, and they try to say, well, see, this proves that it doesn't. Okay, anyway, we'll go on. Um, 
the same is true with other major doctrines. Spiritual understanding is also speaking of that which is not correct. I said that spiritual understanding, like the nature of Jesus, will reveal this. Knowledge, wisdom, spiritual understanding. Okay, life application. It is good to give thanks for the salvation of others, but it should also be our heart's desire that they grow in wisdom and knowledge concerning God and his word. Okay, I'll stop right there. A uh, couple months ago, and I won't give any names, but a couple months ago, somebody emailed me from Pakistan, and he said, you know, I, I'm seeking out the Lord, and I want to know the truth, and I don't understand this Trinity thing, and can you please help me? And I, I responded to his emails, and very nice, very gracious, very polite, and he uh, finally emailed me and said, I have received Jesus as my Savior. I have found God. I, I was so happy, okay? Um, and uh, from there, you know, I'm not one to trust anybody because I've gotten a lot of people that have, you know, they'll, they'll send you an email saying something. Next thing you know, they want money and they, you know, the rest of your life you're spending money trying to help these people. Okay, believe me, it happens all the time. And these aren't even people that attend church online or that have read the commentaries. They're just people that see a bond servant of Christ on my, on my, uh, my uh, email and I get emails from them. They're just fish, fishers. And they're just saying, you know, I get them all the time and twice on Sunday. Okay, so um, the uh, this guy did that. And then he uh, said, I would like to have a Bible. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking, you know, is he true? Because, you know, I mean, I've had many people ask me for Bibles and it comes out that in the end, they just are there to get something from you. So I'm questioning this guy, I'm questioning him in my head, not him, but I, I committed to getting him a Bible, and it was way cheaper to send from England than from here. So I had my friend in the UK send him a Bible to Pakistan from the UK, okay? Because here, if we send it, it's gonna be like 100 bucks. It's gonna cost more than the Bible, even if it's a really good Bible. It's gonna be really expensive. From the UK, it was probably a couple bucks. I don't remember, but I paid the guy. I mean, I'm, I didn't just ask him to do it, not refund him. But then he emailed and he said, well, um, uh, I'd like to have a couple Bibles in Urdu, our native tongue as well. And I'm beginning to think, you know, and, and you just don't know because is he selling them? Is he, you know, I, I have no idea. And so I was happy and we sent him uh, some money for some Bibles in Urdu. And then I got an email last week and there he is standing there. He said, I want you to have this picture and I want you to print it off and pray for us. My wife has accepted the Lord as well. Aww. He sent me a picture of himself, his wife, and they're holding their Bibles. And so I know that they're not scamming me. I know that there are people that really wanted to know. And so it is good to give thanks for the salvation of others. But it should also be our heart's desire that they should grow in wisdom and knowledge concerning God and his word. And I when I realized their true intent, because I don't know until I know, I sent him an email and I said, if you need any help with doctrine, I want you to let me know. I will make an effort to always answer your emails quickly. I was so thankful, you know, but I, I just have been ripped off by so many people over the years. I can't tell you how many times. And so until I know, and when he said, please pray for us, and there they are, this middle-aged couple standing there holding their Bibles, I just was so wonderful. So God is good, you know, it makes it all worthwhile. All the times that people just cheat you and just, uh, uh, 
It was so nice to see. So I haven't printed off their picture yet, but I click on that. I clicked on it just a while ago. As a matter of fact, if you go to Gmail, it'll probably still be up. But don't do that. We, I don't want you to m miss what we're doing right now. Therefore, yeah, well, I just, he'll click something and the live stream will go off or something. Uh, therefore, in addition to the thanks we give for the salvation of others, let us remember to pray for their development into mature followers of the Lord. And so as I was walking around the around the mall this morning, rounding up weeds, I was praying for them. And once again, I'm not gonna give their names. There's 15 billion people in Afghanistan, so I haven't given anything away or anything private, but I'm so thankful for these two people that have committed to the Lord. And we'll just hope that their lives in Christ will be full and they will be fuller every day. All right, so, um, as a matter of fact, he may have said, and I can't remember, he may have said, have your church pray for me as well. And if so, then I will give their names and we'll do that. But I don't want to do that until I remember. I will usually write things like that down. But uh, I just, uh, you know, I don't want to do something and have somebody get into a pickle in another country. <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway, we're going to go on. Uh, 110. Oh, we got 15 minutes. We can do it. We can do it. Okay. Okay. Uh, verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, very close. That you may work, walk, worthy, <laughs> walk worthy of the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Really close. Okay, so um, let's see here. 110. Excuse me. This is a continuation of the previous verse in which Paul explains why he and Timothy were giving thanks to God and praying for those at Colossae. He says that their prayers were also, here it is, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. He had just mentioned the desire that they be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That was the previous verse. This then logically follows that excuse me, with knowledge, one needs to then apply what they know, living out the life that their knowledge has told them is appropriate. In this, their walk will be worthy of the Lord. In this state, their conduct will be fully pleasing to him. The word Paul uses here is found only this once in the New Testament. It is areskia and it indicates making an effort to fully and satisfactorily please. He is making a logical sequence of events in the believer's lives that demonstrates the process of growing unto maturity. In such a state, the believer will be, Paul's words, fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, I took all that and I made a commentary on that. I should have broken it down into about three separate paragraphs, but anyway, there's a lot in there. But this this thought goes back, better read that again, fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This thought goes backward now in order to re-explain the words fully pleasing to the Lord. Being fruitful indicates the positive results of a walk worthy of the Lord, which is seen in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God is what leads to that state of fruitfulness. His thoughts form a mini chiasm as they first move forward to fully pleasing him and then moving backwards after that thought. Paul's desire for this to occur in the Colossians was so strong that he purposefully repeats the thought in order to solidify it in their and thus in our minds. 
Albert Barnes's commentary on this verse is well worth citing. These are Albert, comment, Albert Barnes' words from his commentary. God is pleased with those who desire to understand what he is, what he does, what he purposes, what he commands. Hence, he not only commands us to study his works, but he has made a world so beautiful as to invite us to contemplate his perfections as reflected in that world. All good beings desire that others should understand their character, and God delights in those who are sincerely desirous of knowing what he is and who inquire with humility and reverence into his counsels and his will. People are often displeased when others attempt to look into their plans, for they are sensible whether, uh, I'm sorry, for they are sensible they will not bear the light of investigation. God has no plans which would not be seen to be in the highest degree glorious to him. In other words, Albert Barnes is saying that some people will have their plans and their designs and they don't want you to look into what's behind them because you'll find out that there is an ulterior motive behind them. But when God creates a set of anemones that show up on the hills of Israel for a couple of days once a year, he does that for a reason. He does that so that we will seek him out. And there is no hidden agenda behind that. He's doing it, one, to awe the people that happen to walk by on that day, and he's also doing it to demonstrate that he has complete control over the environment. He has complete control over the life of those things. Every single thing that God does is purposeful. There is nothing in God that is not purposeful. And I said, I didn't tell you. I didn't tell you. At the beginning of the class, I should have told you to pray for Emma. Did I tell you about her? I didn't. I did, but I told you before class. Did I say it during class? No, no, she said no, so you remember before class. Okay, I thought so. I went to visit Emma today. I wanted to give you a report on that, and I didn't write it down because it was after I'd written all those things down earlier. So I went to see Emma, and I walked in there, and the first thing that I did, she's all covered up in her blanket because she's been exercising down in the rehab room all day. Her wall was all filled up with stuff to do. I said, can I see your right leg? Yes, you can. So I picked off the blanket and before I even had it off, she had it lifted and she was doing this and all of her toes were, were tickling, you know, uh, moving her toes. And I was so happy and I grabbed it and I said, can you feel it? I can feel it. She finally has feeling in her right foot. Okay, and then I said, well, how about your right arm? Can I see you do something? And before I, she had it up that quickly. I mean, this is unbelievable how quickly. I said, do you have any feeling? I was feeling her hands and I don't have any feeling yet. I said, and her mom is sitting there and we're talking. And I, I said, you know, I know this is hard. And I said, I know it's discouraging. And I said, I know that you get downhearted at times, but God has a plan for you. God does not make any mistakes in your life. And if you can understand that and appreciate it, and she completely got it. She said, here's a girl that's 34 years old that is in the hospital after a major stroke and she's, she's suffering through the rehabilitation process. And she wants to say something and it's just like Bob, the words come out wrong. He, he, he's thinking one thing and something else comes out. And that will probably never be corrected with Bob because he's had so many strokes but he is getting better. I mean, he's understandable by far. But 
her words, she will want to say Ashley and her the name Jesse will come out. And you can see it's frustrating because I, I, I didn't want to say Jesse, but that's just what comes out. And so and I told her, God is working. He's going to get you through this and don't think it's a mistake. Well, just as I said about the enemies that come on the hills of Israel, he's done this for a purpose and he has a purpose for Emma if she's willing to seek out that purpose. So keep that in mind that when you think that things are not working properly, and I said this in the commentary as well this morning, the one that I typed this morning, everything God has under control, everything. When something bad happens in our life, the first thing we do is say, oh God, why? We can trust him to have the earth function properly. We can trust him to have the solar system to keep spinning properly. We can trust him to have the whole galaxy continue to work and the whole universe to work properly, but we can't trust him about our little problem, okay? And Emma needed to hear that today, and so that's what I told her. Your problems are not unknown to God. He's going to get you through this in the way that he sees is right. I'm not saying she's going to have full motion again or be able to do all the things she did once before, but he is working on her, okay? And she needs to just trust that, and all of us need to do that as well. Just trust that the Lord has everything under control. Don't owe God when things go bad. You know, I understand it's hard not to, but he has got a plan. He had a plan for Joseph. He had a plan for Ruth, and he's got a plan for every one of us. It may not be what we expect, but it will be good when it's done. We'll look back and say it was perfect. Okay, life application, and we are done. If you are not growing in the knowledge of God through Bible studies, you cannot be pleasing to him. Only when one takes the knowledge of God and his expectations and then unites it with a walk in accord with that knowledge can he be truly pleasing to the Lord. As always, it comes down to knowing the word. So, study your Bible. Read your Bible, study your Bible, think on your Bible, get another Bible and read that one. If you have time, look at the Hebrew and the Greek. It's complicated. Listen, all of my Hebrew and Greek is self-taught and it's taken a long, long time. I did take, you know, I had to in college take Hebrew one and Greek one, all right? And all you get is just this, this is what the verbs are called and you don't get any real stuff. It's just basic, okay? but. Every single week, I know a little bit more than I knew the week before. And if you got the time, just pull it up. And the one thing that I will tell you, and it was to be a cheap shot to King James only people, and yet I have found it has been one of the best tools that I have ever used, is to take the King James Version and compare it directly to the Hebrew for every single verse that I do in the Old Testament and every single verse I do in the New Testament. And I have taught myself so much that I never would have known. So if you want to, pick a version of the Bible and just compare and say, where are they wrong and why are they wrong? And just keep studying. You know, you got nothing but time. Just, you know, what are you going to use your time for? Watching Perry Mason? Well, yeah, we do. We're almost done. I'm in season nine. Hedico is so excited with Perry Mason. We just watch one a day if we have time. Today we won't because there just won't be time. But we watch one a day and we've been going through all of them. I've got the last two from the first minute. I said, that's the killer. And I was right. Hedico goes, how did you know? I said, oh, just so I pat myself on the back about that one. Anyway, let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for your hand upon 
the people that uh, we mentioned earlier and Emma as well. Please be with them and help them through their, their trials, their operations, their physical rehabilitations. And uh, Lord, we pray for Jim. We want him to be happy and healthy and jumping around really soon, but not too much. And then we also want to pray again for Steve, who's leaving to go back up to uh, Indianapolis and have somebody uh, do some surgery on him. So, And all the other people we mentioned at the beginning. And Lord, I certainly want to pray for uh, doctrine for those two wonderful people in Pakistan who have committed to you. And Lord, uh, please help them to pursue you in, in your word and through your word all the days of their lives. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to meet here and praise you for this wonderful, beautiful word you've given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, everybody says, I hear this all the time, we always wave back to you, so always make sure that you, uh, uh, yeah.